So anyway, uh, Philip is in town, and as we do whenever he is, um, Mark and Teen and I, the four of us, get dinner. So last night we went to the steakhouse that a coworker of mine had recommended, and coincidentally, Teen's coworker had also recommended, and we went there. But Philip and I liked our steaks, but I guess Mark and Teen are, are much more sophisticated than we are, and <laughs> they, they had many complaints. <laughs> yeah, Mark was like, "Ah, oh, this this." Beef was clearly not aged. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to say the name of of the place because you know we have obviously we have a ton of foodie influence and a bad word from Plan A can shut down a place. And I know we have to be careful. Yeah, Oriana, what what are the restaurants like in New Haven? Oh, they're pretty good. Um, New Haven is actually famous for pizza. Yeah, it was it that Pepe's or or some place like that that has the clam pie. Yeah, Pepe's. Yeah, it's like the number one. It was rated number one when in the U.S. when I was a freshman, so like three years ago. Oh, so in the entire country? Wow. Yeah, that's in the cool. entire country. Whoa. I've never actually. <laughs> I haven't been there yet because it, <laughs> what it's kind of like there's a drive and then it's usually really crowded, so you probably have to make a reservation before. I don't know, um, but yeah. Thing is, Mark had recommended the steakhouse he likes, uh, but it's in, I guess, New Jersey. You know, you know that place, Prime and Beyond. That's where he went for his birthday, and then he recommended it to Christina, and she went there for his birthday. So that maybe place we should crazy good, yeah. Yeah, maybe yeah, we should it so good. give them like a like a plug here and just keep doing it until they sponsor us or something. <laughs> <laughs> and by sponsor, I think we'll settle for uh, like complimentary asparagus anytime we go there. Hey man, I'll take what I can get. <laughs> exactly. Escape from Plan A. And your diploma, but for your name, exactly the same. All of this is as it should be because none of you is special. You're not special. You're not exceptional. Contrary to what your U9 soccer trophy suggests, your, your glowing seventh grade report card, despite every assurance of a certain corpulent purple dinosaur, that nice Mr. Rogers and your batty Aunt Sylvia, no matter how often your paternal caped crusader has swooped in to save you, you are nothing special. Hey everyone, welcome to Escape from Plan A, Plan A Mag's podcast. Uh, I'll be your host for this episode, Oxford, and I'm here with Jess. Hi. <laughs> and our, our first time potter, Oriana. Yay, Oriana. Hi. <laughs> Yay. Uh, so this uh, episode will be about, well, we we are approaching early April, so every high school senior knows what the season entails, college admissions. And a few days ago, there was an article in the LA Times that talked about Asian Americans and like, uh, you know, getting into college and, and what happens afterwards. So, yeah, we just want to use that and talk about the, the wider issues because this comes up all the time, you know, Asian Americans in college. So, Jess, I think you had some pretty strong feelings about this article, right? You want to take us through it? Um, yeah. I mean, first, I think I think we actually talked about this uh, before, too. It hasn't changed. You see this article everywhere around this time of year. Like nothing's changed about this. Yeah, for it's like, like an annual years. tradition. <laughs> yeah, like like early spring rolls around. It's it's like it's like Groundhog Day, really. Um, you know it's spring. You know what, exactly what season it is when there's an article 
bashing Asians for, you know, their college ambitions. Yeah, for those who haven't read the article, why don't you summarize what this is all about in the article? Sure. So um, so we'll start with the authors. It's uh, two, I, I think, academics. Uh, one is, uh, they're both Asian. One's uh, East Asian, I believe Korean, and the other is uh, Southeast Asian or possibly Indian. Um, academics. I, I think it's South Asian. South Asian? Yeah. Okay. Um, academics who've been studying, uh, who've been studying this issue for, for a little while. And I think they have a book coming out talking about, you know, um, uh, they described it as, uh, redefining success in a racially diverse America. And so the, they, they authored this piece and it basically kind of just breaks down, uh, it's actually, it seems to be based on actual interviews. So it's a it's a uh, qualitative study of Asian Americans uh, and just examining their attitudes about education, about status, and you know, um, you extrapolating how they feel about education to uh, and what it means in adult life, like what what kind of impact it'll have on careers, later success, etc. And uh, what they found was, you know, Asians are really uh, concerned about, you know, prestige and status. They're really driven to uh, to push themselves, you know, and their children to succeed academically. And uh, and obviously, we have strong numbers academically, so there is a lot of truth to this. But what they wanted to do was try to examine what that meant for people who uh, once they were out of school. And what they found was... um, kind of depressing uh that uh racism is quite alive in the uh in the workplace so there are still barriers to entry especially in upper management like and they 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 uh they post some numbers talking about uh like the number of ceos who were from elite institutions uh and, and so their point is basically that this uh this drive to succeed academically isn't quite uh what it's cut out to be like it ultimately is not that helpful, uh, given the numbers, uh, like given what happens after you leave these institutions. So, uh, and then, and then they end really abruptly, in my opinion. Um, the only action item they really had was, uh, uh they found that Asian Americans don't really, uh, don't really volunteer in communities. Yeah, that seemed like like out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, it really like I don't know. They, there could have been a, a a solid point, but they they spent like four sentences on it. So I don't know what kind of what what they meant by it really. Like is not volunteering like is it not uh building some crucial skill that we need in the workplace to advance? Yeah, I think they even said that this is a correlation. So they don't even attempt to say that there's a causation. Right. They don't even explain, like, do people look at how much people volunteer when they're making determinations for who's going to become a CEO? Like, it doesn't really seem to make sense to me. Oh, I was going to say, like, the common tone with these, you know, annual articles always seems to be admonishing Asians for, you know, being too obsessed with prestige or putting too much stock into these colleges. So I think, and a lot of them, they will say, you know, things like it, it breeds uh, like hyper competitivity and it's like bad for your psyche and all that. So I wanted to start off by starting off with our personal stories to see if that really did play a part. So Jess, why don't, why don't do you want to start off to like when you were in high school, how did this process affect you? Mm, I mean, the environment was super competitive. Uh, so 
You, uh, maybe you should say where you grew up. Oh, sure. Uh, Arcadia, California. So it's a it's a really uh, heavily Asian, specifically Chinese uh, enclave. So my student body was about 75% uh, Chinese American uh, at the time I went there. And that number's only gone up since. So it's uh, it's upper middle class to upper class. So it's it's a really it, it was a really it was a pressure cooker, honestly. Um, so the pressure to get into these elite schools was intense. I I mean, the year I graduated, uh, there were two suicides around this time of year because oh shit yeah because uh, they didn't get into their school of choice. So that's that's how insanely competitive uh, that scene was. So, uh, oh, what year was this? That's also important. Uh, two thousand three. Okay, because it's only gotten worse since then. <laughs> yeah, it, it it can't have gotten better. I mean, I I know. Um, I, I mean, I know the student body has gotten much wealthier in the years since. I, I mean, I don't have much of a connection to the high school anymore, but uh, I can't imagine it's any better. And I mean, I, I get the alumni reports, and it's you know every year they always talk glowingly about the people who. You know, how many people got sent to Harvard and Yale and all these uh, great schools, etc. Um, so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of pressure to, to there's a lot of success on the at stake or not success. There's a lot of prestige at stake. And for uh, for teenagers who never really know any alternative, I think it's uh, I think it's it's pretty damaging. And Oriana, you are currently a college student, so you went through this process rather recently. So why don't you tell us uh, about what it was like for you? Yeah, sure. So I graduated in 2015. Um, I'm currently a junior at Yale. Um, I grew up in Livingston, New Jersey, which is the same town as Christina. Uh, we were best friends in high school. Um, and like Jess, uh, Livingston is also kind of an Asian enclave. Um, I think that if you actually look at the numbers, maybe like 30% of the town's population is actually Asian, primarily Chinese American, but it certainly felt like a lot more, partly because all of the Asians hung out and uh, spent a lot of time together, and it was, it was pretty racially split in terms of who was um, friends with whom. Um, and so I remember my high school, I went to a public high school, and it was also, um, I would say, pretty competitive, but definitely not as bad as having people actually commit suicide for not getting into their top choices. Um, but I really remember that I was really stressed. And the summer before my senior year, I worked in a lab in New York City, and I just remember like, like sitting at the machine, like slicing brain tumor samples and thinking like what if i just didn't go to college like wait a minute you were working at a lab in the summer before college yeah holy fuck what the <laughs> <laughs> no i yeah, i did too I mean, I... oriana i hear you that flickering <laughs> fluorescent light in like august yeah, yeah while you're doing you know random creepy <laughs> creepy stuff in a lab while all your friends are partying and kind of and celebrating going off to college. Yeah. Oh, I yeah, I remember thinking that too. Like, what if I just didn't go? And it felt like, it felt like such a seditious thought. Like, I think I burst out laughing yeah, like, no, that's yeah. not, that's not reality. That's never going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I was mostly thinking about it as like, 
I really hate the system and what a rebellion it would be if I just completely like stepped out of it. Um, and I also had just, I visited a bunch of schools, mostly on the East Coast, and none of them really vibed with me. And so I was like, okay, so I haven't like found that clicking feeling. And also if I apply to all these places and get rejected, people are going to look down on me um, because at my school, it was really like a mark of distinction to get into these tops to these top schools, mostly Ivies. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of pressure um, in that sense. But I also think it's really hard for me to be very critical of it because I think I would probably feel differently about how important it is that I've actually gotten here if I didn't get in. Like, I think that the fact that I like did successfully like get into an Ivy League school um, kind of undermines whether or not I can really criticize it. Yeah, there's a there's a book I want to talk about later. It's called Excellent Sheep by William Durisowitz. Uh Oriana, you probably know of him. Yeah, he used to teach yeah, here. Yeah, because he was a Yale professor. And, and like, yeah, that's one of the problems I have with the book. Like, he pretty much shits on the Ivy League, but it's like you've lived and feasted off the Ivy League for all your life. Um, so it's kind of easy for you to say that as opposed to someone who didn't get in. It's It's one of those situations where you can only critique that system. If you are part of it, if you've already been validated by it. Otherwise, it sounds like sour grapes. Right. Yeah, you also get a certain credibility. Yeah, exactly. Because, yeah, exactly. If you didn't get in, the, the easiest attack on you will be, well, you're just jealous. Yeah. You're just a hater. Yeah, or you just you just couldn't cut it, so you, yeah. you're just hating on people who uh, who did succeed. Yeah, but then sometimes it's like, on the other hand, it's like, if you did get in, then people will say like, oh, you got in, so it doesn't matter for you to criticize the system because no matter what, you're going to reap advantages from it. Yeah, it's pretty tricky, huh? Yeah. I, Orion, I was just so shocked that you were working the summer before college. <laughs> what, what my <laughs> most notable accomplishment the summer before college for me was I threw my first house party, the first <laughs> and only house party, <laughs> and the cops came. <laughs> were your parents away? <laughs> Yeah, they were away, and they gave me full permission. Uh, they didn't do it again, but it was okay. It was mainly okay. It was mainly okay. Nothing got broken, but I was also a weird case because I, you know, I grew up in Vancouver, but I went to an American college. So the really liberating thing about that was I was only competing against myself. I like I went to like a decent high school, but uh, that just meant that most of the uh, kids there went to like the top provincial university, and the top Canadian schools are all these massive public schools that are very high quality but it's quite easy to get in in that there's no like arcane it's, it's not some weird labyrinth you have to go through if you have the gpa you're pretty much in so um i i think i decided to just apply to american schools because i thought it'd be cool to get away and it actually might be kind of a, a thing to do because otherwise you know if you have like a bb plus average you're pretty much going to ubc or or anywhere uh like a good canadian school so yeah, there was no pressure in that there was nobody competing against me. Uh, I went to Brown, which is, uh, you know, it's not like as world famous as like a Harvard. So they're like, I, I bet most of the kids, my classmates didn't even know <laughs> what it was. Uh, so it was, it was quite, and like my school didn't even have APs. So, you know, you hear about these crazy high schoolers who have to take like 12 APs. I like took one as I self-studied U.S. history just for the hell of it. So yeah, that I think that's, um, my experience was quite different from your guys's because I, any pressure I had was just kind of like on myself. I took 15 AP courses. Oh my God. Oh yeah. my God. 
How many did your school uh, offer? Like, like, I think around 20. Pretty much the entire catalog. Minus, wow. like, like German or, you know, the European foreign languages. I think we did offer French, but I didn't take it. Take that. Actually, my school did wow. offer AP Calculus AB, which is, I think, the like the dumber calculus. I think BC is the harder one. Yeah. And I got I got the worst grades in my high school career in that class, like <laughs> C's. But thankfully, it was it was scaled, so like a C was a B and whatever. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So that was yeah, and I ended up getting you know decent financial aid. Otherwise, you know, American schools are just crazy fucking expensive compared to Canada. I wouldn't have gone if if it weren't for the money. Oh um, man, yeah, so, you said yeah. I was gonna hit you up for money if you <laughs> like, huh? He went to Brown as an international student. He must be loaded. <laughs> <laughs> but it's weird because like Canadians are like pseudo international. Um, <laughs> I think we get almost considered as American. It's not like if I were like a Korean international, that would be totally different. I remember when I was in high school, I didn't take as many APs as some of the other people did. And I was really stressed about that because part of the and so I I took news like the class newspaper to work on the school newspaper as one of the like people on the staff for two years and that class didn't have any credits because you don't get a grade and so I like skipped the required like financial it was like the class that teaches you how to pay your taxes and like like how to write a check and stuff like that by taking it over the summer because I was so stressed about the fact that I wasn't going to take as many APs Jesus as Christ. Man. But that actually sounds like a useful class. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was useful. I wish I still remembered. Yeah, stuff no, I had it. no like I had nothing yeah. like like I think I was well into my freshman year of college before I really understood that a debit card was different from a credit card. Yeah, I know. Like like Si- pitying silence i know <laughs> anyway i think it's because of experiences like you guys had i mean just the extreme end in which you you know you had classmates who committed suicide i think that's why a lot of these articles are always tell asians you know stop stop being so obsessed with, with these elite colleges so like they they are coming from from a place of legitimate concern but uh, i think you said in some of our slack chats it also ignores the fact that for a lot of Asians, if you don't have that credential, like what what else do you really have, right? You want to talk more about that? Yeah, it's it's true. Uh, I mean, one of my problems with the article here uh, is that if you look at the the citations that they're sourcing, uh, that they're basing their points on, it's kind of assuming that uh, I mean, the two races here being compared are Asian Americans and white people, basically. Um, <clears throat> it and uh. It's kind of conflating those two. It's assuming these two classes, these two races are equivalent. And the only distinguishing factor is education, right? So when they go on to cite, you know, only one CEO of a top 10 Fortune 500 company got their undergraduate degree from an Ivy League. Only 30% of American-born CEOs attended an elite college. Well, let's break that down a little bit further, like how many how many if we already know that there's a racial discrepancy there so the question isn't the question isn't does getting an ivy league education make it likelier for you to uh, become ceo the question is going to be different for asians and 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 white people asians and other people of color like the myth the 
the myth of that the uh, the dropout genius who can you know like pull a company out of his ear and take it to the fortune 100 i don't see i don't see that uh that stereotype playing out so nicely for asians yeah even for white people it's it's such a fantasy and like okay let's not t- like okay they they talked about the ceos of the top top 10 fortune 500 companies and you know who went to an ivy league university right but then let's break it down like of the asians and asian americans who reached those ranks how many of them went to an ivy an an elite institution that's that's the real question here at stake not not overall it's how many of how many of us who got there come in with these with advanced credentials versus un you know lesser credentialed people and if my personal experience is playing out, then you need, it's, this is where it plays out. You can come, this is where racism plays out. You can come in with these elite credentials and still be considered less than someone without them. Mm-hmm. So are you saying they are necessary but not sufficient? Yeah. And then they're mistaking the fact that not as many Asians are in these upper uh, fields as saying, well, you don't need the Ivy degree at all. Yeah. Which is like, there's no, there's, yeah, logically doesn't make sense. You're, yeah, okay. I agree with you completely. Um, but I, I think that one consideration is that sometimes I feel like there is some infighting over how elite the particular institution is. Like, it's not like, oh, you went to Duke, like, that is, like, fairly comparable to going to, like, harvard it's like oh my god i didn't get into harvard and i only got into duke. are you throwing shade at duke right now that's not enough <laughs> no, 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 no i'm no, all no. for it i'm, I'm, I'm all for about... it I, I have a personal reason for hating duke <laughs> i i'm thinking about um do you remember like over the summer there was that article in the new york times about affirmative action and they quoted somebody who had gone so it's really funny i know this guy but because he used to go to my high school but he and then I think he moved to the town next door or something like that. Um, but he, yeah. But that was it. Was in the New York Times, and basically he had gone into Duke, but he hadn't gone in, into Harvard, and so he was criticizing affirmative action for keeping him out of Harvard. And I wrote an article for a campus publication that, like, like that fall, like soon after that article came out, and. I interviewed one of the professors here, like a professor of Asian American history who herself is Asian American, and she was talking about how it's utter, it's ridiculous that there's like that distinction, like just because you went to Duke doesn't mean that you're going to have so many fewer opportunities than somebody who went to Harvard. Um, And I feel like sometimes there is some sort of, there is like a kind of stratification, like oh my god, like, you didn't get into the top of the top. You only got into the top. Yeah, but still, there is... But it's... uh, Like, the principle is still there, right? If there is a place that's actually uh, discriminating against you, even if it's, like, you're choosing between the top, top school and merely, like, the top school, uh, I get... Yeah, Yeah. it is... I think it is a legitimate complaint. If there is a place that purportedly says we are except you know we we don't discriminate but they are you you do have to raise that issue because then it's not just about college admissions right like then you can use that for in any field and yeah it's, it's a i mean i don't know i don't uh i don't know if we want to talk about affirmative action here because it's such a complicated topic but it, it is yeah right yeah um anyway my my issue with a lot of these issues about hyper competitiveness is that i what really bugs me about 
uh, like all these Asian kids having to compete for is that in the end they're competing against each other, right? Because we all know that there's a quota. And I, th- I think what the, the harmful thing really is, I don't really think it's about college. As, uh, as you said, like Harvard, Duke, like if we're strictly just uh, looking at results, I don't think it really matters that much in the end, like outside of the, of the principal idea. But I think what re- was actually really harmful for Asian American kids is that they have to internalize this idea that there is this thing called Asianness, And in order to succeed at the highest levels, they have to overcome it somehow and they have to beat out other Asian kids. So it all becomes about how you stand out when compared to other Asian kids. I remember writing my college essay and I was uh, I was on the school football team and I knew like, oh, if I write about that, it's probably going to be perceived as stereotypically non-Asian. I also like to write, so I said, oh, if I somehow combine those two, it'll probably work really well, as opposed to me talking about uh, really liking math or whatever. And I think that carries with you the, the rest of your life. And it reinforces this idea that like, your race is something that you have to somehow convince others that you, like, you're not as Asian as they think. And that's a good thing. Hmm. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah, that's really true. Um, I never actually felt that uh, growing up. Uh, I actually felt it was an expression of Asianness to be uh, this competitive. Because as you said, um, we were largely competing against each other, right? Um, the, like, you mean other Asians? Other Asians, yeah. Like nobody else really gave a crap as much as we did. Um, I mean, like if you if you go to like an elite prep school in, in like New York City or New England, yeah, sure. But like... In, in our immediate schools, probably, yeah, we were probably the ones who cared the most. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're not talking about, like, the rich prep schools or, you know, the, anything like that. But, like, in my own high school, like, no, I mean, I had white friends and they got into, like, mid-tier state colleges and they were overjoyed and their parents were thrilled. And I'm not looking down on them. That's perfectly valid. And they got good educations. But they were, like, they were just happy, right? They were just happy with that. Whereas uh, for us, like, there was an extra, like, jet fuel booster uh, on, you know, our, the intensity of our drive to make it to the pantheon of schools. And there's not a lot of schools that have that kind of, like, that mythos behind them that actually, that are the bulletproof pantheon, right? So this would be, like, uh, the top three, like, this would be Harvard, Yale, Princeton, right? Or MIT, where you went. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, MIT kind of sits... It's not an Ivy... It's It kind of sits outside that whole, uh, like, that whole uh, Ivy League system. I, I, I feel like it kind of operates... Like, the two tech schools, like Caltech and MIT, kind of exist in their own little world. Nobody really knows where to place them. I mean, I don't think a lot of people... Yeah, I used to get questions like, like, oh, yeah, where do you go? I go to MIT. Oh, it must be really cold in Michigan. Like, I'm sure it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, do people really? Uh, yeah. Do you not watch Goodwill no Hunting? <laughs> like, like you uncultured buffoon. Uh, but I mean, like, whatever, right? Like, it just goes to show, like, we're the only ones who read the signal this carefully and intently. Like, this is like this is our like the uh, a religion, right? That we have. Uh, this is the thing that this is the tie that binds for Asian Americans, really. The pressure that we feel, even the ones who didn't feel it still know what it's about. And they define themselves as not having been part of that. Um, I was talking to somebody yesterday who uh, talked about how when she was growing up, she 
she didn't receive that much pressure from her parents to get into a really top school, but she felt a lot of pressure from other parents in the Chinese community that she was a part of. And she thinks that a lot of her drive to get into an Ivy had to do with had to do with feeling like if she didn't get in, she would be shaming her parents. Oh yeah, that's um, because true. Because yeah. she would be perceived as lesser than the other Chinese children by the other Chinese parents, uh, which I thought was really interesting. I I saw how after I I got into to my college, I saw how like my mom's social status rose among like the the Korean mom community uh, where I grew up, and also in like our our relatives. Yeah, she it, it does. Yeah, that, that's a hard thing, I think, especially about being Asian-American. It's not just about you, just because, of, I think, of the way immigrants have to give up a lot and they, they want to see some... Reward is, is the wrong word. It, it makes them sound too selfish. But they, they want to see that it wasn't all for nothing, right? And it means so much more to an immigrant than, than say, just, like, Americans who have lived here for, for many more generations. So, I mean, the article talks about success, right? Um, and I think there's there are varying definitions of success, and they really need they owe it to their work and to the Asian American population to be very precise about what they're talking about in terms of success. So if they're talking about success, as in you know, the way the way we would, right? We talk about I think people in our generation would talk about success. I know Oriya, you're much younger, but just <laughs> we'll just for the sake of conversation. Um, like, okay, for second generations, we'd probably be more inclined to describe success holistically, right? Like, like we would include things like, like satisfaction, you know, uh, well-being, uh, you know, how fulfilled do you feel by this work? Not just by like dollars and cents and, you know, validation from the outside world, like how many awards you're winning, how much money do you make? Uh, things like that, right? But I feel like the first gen would define success much in much starker terms, it does come down to how much validation from the outside world uh, you are able to receive, uh, and that and and you know that comes down to prestige, status markers, all of all of that, and the the softer qualities of success are are they're secondary. And even among that second generation, you have people who tilt more towards like first gen and second gen, because like for example, if you're second generation, but maybe if your parents were like refugees or something you may hold you may place more importance on things like financial security and all that whereas if you are a second generation and your parents were you know affluent artists from asia you your priorities may be different even if you are part of the same like group yeah and i actually want to like call out the authors for this is actually if they're trying to um denigrate the push to uh, the push to get their kids into these Ivy leagues uh, by talking about success in that more holistic way. This is actually a little uh, this is discriminatory against the priorities of the first gen. I think that I think there's a lot of validity to those worries that the first generation has, and I think that deserves a lot more respect than just saying uh, no. They're just too focused on you know prestige and status, all those uncool things that we're all supposed to pretend we don't care about. Okay, so here's a question I want to ask. Um, so this article is trying to say don't place so much uh, worth on these like top schools because your kind of like professional success may not depend so much on it. I want to rephrase that line of thinking. Like, do you think there is something inherently 
harmful in because there's like a certain Ivy League mindset, right? You adopt a certain set of values and like cultural cues and all that. Do you think that in itself is somehow harmful to Asian Americans and we can do better by stop worshiping it so much? What do you guys think? What do you mean by? Well, I know what you mean. I know what you mean by mindset. I think that people do come out of it's like a machine. You come in one way and you come out. Everybody's the same. Yeah, because the way I look at it, I look at like elite college admissions as as like probably the most stark microcosm of, of this kind of like white liberal system. You have these white dominated institutions who rely very heavily on like their their westernness for prestige. I mean, for example, um, I, I read that book, The Price of Admission, by Daniel Golden. This was like uh, like a big book, uh, like kind of like in the mid two thousands when I graduated from high school, and he kind of exposes how uh, a lot of these schools built up their prestige. And some of the funniest parts were how, like Oriana, n- not to pick on Yale too much, but I'm sure you know this, but <laughs> yeah. uh, like a lot of the old Gothic buildings at Yale are not that old at all. They were all like built in like oh, the yeah. early 20th century. And, and the funniest part is they would build it and they would like splash acid on it to make it look, <laughs> look old. And there's a reason they build, you know, Greek columns and, you know, Gothic churches because uh, they're trying to evoke a certain like westernness and i'm not trying to denigrate like westernness i mean i i'm a big fan of westernness i think <laughs> as with all cultures there's much to admire about it but objectively that's what they're doing they are trying to present themselves as these great institutions precisely because of, of how they look and which culture they are representing yeah it draws on tradition right there's you everyone kind of implicitly knows this right this is you're relying on tradition and being validated by an existing system uh to kind of stamp you as a product of a certain type and quality and that's the brand you you carry with you into your professional life it's kind of like vouching for you when you're too young to have like accomplishments of your own yeah and within this system like explicitly you could we can see it in the in the data there's a cap on how many minorities are allowed and as i said the thing i'm worried about with the college admission system is not whether you would get into a harvard or or like a, a uc or whatever it's what I- what are you internalizing? What kind of like philosophy are you internalizing? And I think what ends up happening is you you idealize this system that draws very heavily on like whiteness for its power, and you let them tell you we only want a certain amount of you. Now go fight for it, and you end up fighting your own like group as they prescribe. That's interest. That's an interesting perspective. I f- I feel like most of the the people that I know here are very very critical of whiteness and what that white liberalness looks like and i i wonder if part of that is because of the current uh like political climate and just the current kind of student activism that's that's happening that might be different from what your experience was yeah just you and i like went to college uh, uh, more in the in a similar era uh, i can i can say at least at my place like when i was there like post-racialism was quite in like uh you know blm hadn't happened like the Obama's election happened like smack dab right in the middle of my college college uh, years. So that I think yeah, right now, probably the campus atmosphere is different. But I think for the many years before that, um, it was probably more similar to my experience than, than kind of the new, more like agitative spirit we see now. Uh, I never really had to confront race in college. Uh, maybe that sounds weird to say. Maybe there was a lot that I was missing at the time. But uh, what's the percentage of Asian students at MIT? I uh, I genuinely don't know. I, around thirty percent. 
Okay, that's fairly high. Like my school had, it was pretty low for, it was something like 13%, which is, I think generally, I think like the Ivy League schools have around like 15 to 20. So we were a bit low and I think we're consistently the lowest for whatever reason. Yeah, no, it's a, it was about 30%, uh, high number of foreign students from Asian countries, uh, primarily from, you know, South Korea, China, not so many from Japan. I don't know if that was just an aberration or, or what, what what that was about, but very, very few Japanese foreign students. Um, so I never sat down in a class and was like, oh my God, I'm the only Asian person. Uh, I guess, I don't know, it's, it feels like an aberration compared to a lot of other stories that I've heard from other from people with different experiences. But uh, my school was 48% female as well. So I, we haven't really touched on gender, but That's I think that also... That's pretty low for a college, right? Uh, it's low for a college. It's extremely high for uh, a STEM school. I mean, it was to the point where I didn't... You know, we we talk about, you know, uh, needing more women in STEM. The first I had heard that there was a any sort of shortage was like years after I'd graduated. In some ways, I think my experience was was a little unusual, but I can say like like race never played a factor. I can never say that you know uh, I felt discriminated against because of my race or you know held back because of gender or anything like that. In fact, it was only well after graduating that I started seeing any of that. Maybe it's the people that I know uh, who are very vocal about race and are very active in their communities. But I definitely feel like a lot of the conversation currently revolves around racial issues and racial diversity and kind of thinking about where identities fall and things like that. And I just remember um, when I was a freshman, so three years ago, I don't know if you guys remember, but like Yale made headlines across the country because there was a huge protest on campus right around Halloween. Oh yeah, I know that. People still and talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was all racially driven. It had to do with um, mostly mostly black students, but a lot of students of color who just really didn't feel like they belonged on campus and they felt like the administration was not doing anything to address the particular issues that students of color were facing. So I feel like in my time here, race has really kind of defined my experience. And those conversations around race have also been a large part of uh, just like my daily life here. But I, I don't know if that's particularly unusual or if it's like specific to to Yale or if it's like specific to right now. And if that's going to be something that's going to continue or if it's just a blip um, and soon things will smooth out. It feels like a product of the era. Like it just these issues are just they just there's a different tone and urgency to them right now that seems to be dominating a lot of college discourse. So uh, I so I'm totally not surprised. Yeah, absolutely. That there is more like discussion, more activity, uh, just more just more visibility to these issues than in say previous uh, previous eras. No, I was just going to say that I feel like your point about people being indoctrinated into a certain mindset is still very true. Like, I definitely think that I think about things differently because I've come here. And when I go home and talk to my other friends from my high school, I can see how I've developed a different way of thinking and criticizing issues and talking about issues that they, I, they, they've developed their own ways of thinking about it um, based on the schools that they've gone to. Yeah, so I, I definitely think that it's still something that is a concern. Like, are we all coming out 
robotically similar in a certain way. When you buy a college education, you're really paying to become a certain kind of person as much as you're paying to have certain opportunities and have access to certain networks. Um, so I, I just think it's it's hard for me to say what that kind of person is exactly. Yeah, a lot of my concern also comes from just social proximity. I think I think it's students nowadays are definitely much more like aware and smarter about these things than when I was in college. But you can have the best ideas, but in the end, who are your friends, right? Who do you feel like tribally connected to? I think this is where a lot of people are worried. Like we have a lot of racial diversity in a lot of these schools, but we don't have a lot of class diversity. Um, So I know like a lot of Asian students, they they go to like all the top prep schools and everything. And I'm I'm sure they have, they they have very good ideas. They learn a lot of good things. Uh, But then these people end up being our academics, our, our writers, even maybe our entertainers and all these people who are supposed to represent us. And like, what about like, like the, like the Asians in, in like Chinatown who go to like community college, like these people's perspectives are also very valuable, but time and time again, we always see them never really counted. And sometimes in the worst cases, scapegoated by the very elite Asians. And I think the fundamental problem here is, I think, I forgot which book it was. I, I don't know if it was Price of Admission or Excellent Sheep. It talks about how the American university is, is confused on what it is because it's a blend of, they say, like two European models. The first is the, kind of like the English boarding school model, which we see this a lot in with like, like the way they, they, you know, they create houses, which is all uh, copied from, from that English system. And this idea that you go to college to just kind of like learn to be a person, you make friends, you, you live in the same uh, place and all that. And the other model, they say, is, is the German research university which uh, the whole purpose is is mainly for like scientific output for the betterment of society. And I think it, with American universities, there's this great confusion. What's the purpose of college? Is it to go there to to find yourself, which is a, a way a lot of the schools, especially the elite schools, sell them to, to, their, to the prospective students, especially with like the beautiful brochures, beautiful campuses. Uh, but then on the other hand, these cost a fortune. If you're spending like, how much does college cost nowadays? Like almost 70,000 a year. Um, if yeah. you are paying that, yeah, it is. shouldn't you, isn't it right to expect some kind of Oh my god, is like, it financial... really $70,000 a year now? Yeah, isn't that horrifying? <laughs> wow. uh, but then, like, if you pay that much, shouldn't you expect some kind of return? <laughs> but when you do say that, a lot of people will chide you and say, why are you treating this glorious chance for self-discovery as, as a pure economic transaction? And I think Dorisowitz in his book kind of goes into that. And, and when when there's like a ch- chapter where he addresses, well, what, what about student debt? And his solution is just like, well, the economy is improving. I'm sure you'll find a job. <laughs> now you hear stories about student debt. That just seems so oh toned up. Yeah, it's going to be really hard to think about some high-minded values when you walk out of the school at 22 with the cost of a six-bedroom house riding on your shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> We've gone down the Maslow hierarchy. <laughs> yeah. I think I think that plays out a lot in choice of major, though. I mean, oh, yeah, that's sure. why that's why people talk about like why do you know like everybody's picking STEM fields rather than humanities fields because STEM fields will get you a job and a return on you know your investment in your college education, and if you go into like the liberal arts, like you know you're just wasting your money and you're wasting your time, or it's used as a stepping stone to like. You, if you get an English degree, then, you know, it's expected you're going to try to leverage that into, like, a law degree or a PhD or something. Yeah, exactly. 
yeah, I mean, that that kind of also has to do with, um, I mean, like, people talk about how, and the article talks about this too, like, Asian success, quote unquote, is identified by, is identified as, like, going into engineering or becoming a doctor, and that's a real stereotype. Yeah, but I don't want Asian Americans who genuinely want to do that to feel embarrassed, because I did... Because th- this is what this is what kind of like pisses me off about about like the Ivy League mentality. Because um, okay, so there's this elitist mentality. You just like do what you love. You're you're here to find yourself and all that. That doesn't really work for either people of lesser means and or minorities. And I think if you're an Asian American, especially if you're like caught in the middle, if you're like you know you want to be like a computer programmer or something, it's maybe different. But if you're like stuck in the middle, I do think you feel this immense class pressure. And I mean, for me personally, I didn't really encounter real power and wealth until I went to to college. Like in high school, like the rich kid was the kid who had the Audi. <laughs> like that 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 was the level. But then you go to college, you have people who are come from like family fortunes, people who have were like nobility in, in Europe and all that. Yeah, and I, I remember this like one person I knew of because you know they never associate with you, so you only know of them. And I, I just like knew her name. And then it's like a few years ago, I read uh, something in the newspaper. It turned out she was like one of the the Johnson and Johnson heiresses. <laughs> so if you are, uh, um, and I'm sure you guys encountered the same thing because of the, you know, the types of schools you went to. But um, so if you're like an Asian American and you feel that you, you're like so close to these people, you are going to the same classes as them. You are in the same environment, um, and I and I wonder how much of that like, kind of like influences you. About, and by the time you graduate, and I wonder if that actually harms our community because then, if you feel like you just have to do a little bit more and you might be accepted in there, I think the temptation to do so is very strong because they're like so much more powerful than you are. Well, I think it comes down to what you mean by harms the community, right? So let me take a step back from that, right, and go back to this article. I say. Uh, Asian Americans define success as being a valedictorian, going to a good school, and then pursuing a career in medicine, law, science, or engineering. And they want to do this because it's seen as a safeguard against discrimination in their careers. And then they try to make this uh, this kind this point that you know CEOs don't come from elite institutions usually, so why bother, right? However, if you look at it a different way, these are these are markers of success. It's our own standard of, of success. Is a doctor, a second generation doctor, an Asian American uh, a lawyer, uh, an engineer, are they not successful? They haven't made it to CEO. But can we really sneer at that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely successful. So, I mean, it's 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 saying like we haven't reached like, Mount Olympus, yeah. so let's not even freaking try or like I, this article just didn't make any it didn't make any sense to me. I also have to wonder if that's the bias of these types. Like these are academic types, which is like fairly unusual for Asian Americans. Like, would you agree with that? Uh, I, I I don't know. Uh, that's that's just because my parents were both academics and we hung out with a lot of Asian and Asian American uh, academics. I just I my personal experience makes me totally probably overestimates uh, how likely they are to go into academia. Because I do think it's still an unusual path, especially because so much of academia depends on like white patronage. Um, so it, it's like precisely for that reason that you know your, your most uh, immigrant parents will, will tell the kids not to go down that path. Uh, I mean, I think that's that again reflects demographics. I think like when I went to school, I had a lot uh, like I worked with a lot of Asian 
an Asian American postdocs, right, who then found positions in academia. And that's common across the states, right? Uh, it, once we get to higher education after baccalaureate, um, then you see a much higher representation in PhDs, etc. And a lot of them do find their way into into academia. So I would say that for some sectors, there's probably high representation, particularly in, you know, science, uh, engineering, medicine, etc. My point is, if they consider themselves a, like somehow apart from the typical Asian American, this could kind of be their own bias in that they themselves don't view uh, more traditional paths of success like the, pro- the professions as uh, as real success. So it, in other words, I'm trying to say that they're th- in their head, they're thinking, why, why can't they be more like us? <laughs> Yeah, that that's that's both sides of the aisle. Like academics look down on, you know, business or, um, you know, practicing engineers or scientists and and vice versa. You know, the uh, the engineers who are out there in the private sector look down on academics as the lazy ones who just didn't who didn't quite have it in them to be able to compete in the free market like they are. So there's there's a lot of just that <laughs> that friction going on too that so it's really hard to tease out how much of this is actually like like all these other confounding variables in it, you know. But definitely like, there is a bubble around academics. So there is that way of thinking that's that's shaped uh consciously and unconsciously really. Um so I think going back to what you were saying, your you were your worry is that uh being, for lack of a better word, I guess, indoctrinated into this system of thought. Let's leave aside what that actually is for a second. You, your worry is that it's harmful for the Asian American community. And the reason I brought in, like, six, like going back to this de- article's definition of success, uh, I mean, like, harm has to be measured against, uh, like, uh, success in this case, right? So we have material success by going, by pushing ourselves and you know for the first gen their kids in down these paths we have like definitely ec- a certain measure of economic success we have strong representation in a lot of lucrative fields um so if you're saying harm like is is the harm uh does the harm outweigh that tangible good that came of it i guess it depends on what you're prioritizing i mean the, the harm i'm envisioning it is an effect where you're kind of like skimming the top and making them too invested in the system and you're like perpetuating like 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 it's the worst form of education which is something like you know like the, the original purpose of, of the Rhodes Scholar was to extract the exceptional uh, people from like the dark continents and bring them and teach them how to be uh, British right um, that would be like that would be the dark end of, of this thing but obviously not going to go that far but it is that some effect in, in which you are tearing uh, minority communities uh, amongst themselves and letting them know only like the top X percent will be included in our upper class. And if you didn't make it, then it's because you weren't good enough. And, you know, I understand every system will have to have a hierarchy and, you know, j- probably. And um, and every ruling class will seek to justify itself. And I think if... Uh, if these people do that, I think that's to be expected. I'm not against that. But I want the people who are left out to feel as though they have a legitimate reason to to, to oppose it in, in some way and not feel like they're just not there because they're, they weren't smart enough or they're like, 
like uh, like not Americanized enough, you know, and whatever. Yeah, I mean, I'm, that's that makes a lot of sense. I was always uncomfortable in college because um, I do try to try to you know promote that sense of civic responsibility, right? Like you are here, you're lucky to be here. Not in any pejorative sense, just this is an elite institution, so you have an obligation to give back, right? Using what you've learned. But it's kind of hard to, it, it, I don't know, looking back, it, it was kind of hard to separate civic responsibility from charity or pity. Like, I remember, uh, I, I remember, you know, doing like, you know, those drives where they get you to volunteer in the community or something. Uh, I kind of wonder if that message could have been a little bit clearer that, you know, a little bit stronger message, what the distinction is between, you know, that this is this is civic responsibility, not trickle down economics. Right. Oriana, since you're a current student, um, do you do you have idea on what you want to do after graduation and how like how you want to use this like great education to embedder the world? Is that even a word? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> So I definitely feel like when I, I remember when I first got into Yale, um, I visited during Bulldog Days, which is like the, um, the program for accepted students. And I met with a current student here who uh, like mentioned exactly what you just said about how she felt like when she got in, it meant, and when she decided to come here, she felt like it also came with that added responsibility of having to do something to better the world. Um, I don't know when. So I used to be pre-med um, and I just decided last summer that I was going to drop it after already finishing about half. Oh, the no. oh really? <laughs> um, so you did the, yeah. the organic chemistry <laughs> and all of that? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I liked Orgo, but um, but yeah, I mean, and now I'm doing more humanities, so I switched majors from the biology major to English, and so now I'm an English major, and I'm thinking about possibly going into academia, so it's funny that you talk about <laughs> academia being an unusual path um, <laughs> for Asians, I, because I know a lot of, a lot of my... Asian friends are interested in academia um, as a possible career, especially my Asian friends who are in humanities fields. And I wonder if part of that has to do with, I mean, I know for my, for my parents, for my dad especially, the appeal of academia is that it is a stable career path if you are able to become tenured. Um, you don't have to worry about you know, losing your job as much and, you know, you'll have like healthcare and things like that. And that was also a large part of the reason why he wanted me to go into medicine originally. So I wonder if academia as an alternative has a lot to do with that kind of stability, which is like a substitute for other kinds of stability that come with um, like the more, you know, the stereotyped Asian jobs that are mentioned in the article. I don't know if I know anybody who feels like they're obligated to pursue certain careers or to achieve a certain mindset in order to rise into like the echelons of whiteness and that kind of like aristocratic prestige. But I, I'm sure it exists, but I feel like you have to be a particular kind of person with a particular kind of background to 
uh, like, be charmed by that. I don't think that that's something that, like, I ever wanted. Like, I never, you know, saw somebody who came from that kind of background and was like, wow, I really wish that I could be what you are. Except for, like, oh, you have a family business? Like, wow, I wish I had something (laughs) that I knew I was going to do after graduation. (laughs) But... Yeah, like not not like in the way like oh I wish I was I wish I was you. Oh, one thing I want to I mean this is this has to do with the article, but the the, the idea that Asians aren't ri- rising fast enough because they're, they're they lack volu- they're not volunteering enough. I mean that that seems to put a lot of responsibility on Asians. But I mean there's uh, like the the Birdall study which says that uh, Asians who do the things that we're we're told we're supposed to do like be more assertive and all that that actually hurts us. So. That, that's also, I think, just, uh, I don't think, I think they were just grasping at straws. They were trying to find a way to... to... Yeah, like, yeah, just, they have to really hone in on what they actually meant, right? Like, w- what is it about volunteering that you think is going to help, help these people? Yeah. It also different... might be a reverse of cause and effect. You're more likely to volunteer and be a leader if you feel as though you're totally accepted by the system yeah. and you feel valued. Yeah, and also, it's it comes back to class discussion here. You volunteer because you can. You have the free time, you have the money, you have the means, in other words, to be able to dedicate uh, completely non-income producing time and effort for somebody or something else, right? Yeah, it's not the poor people who sit on the boards of charities. Yeah, so, I mean, so critiquing Asian Americans for not volunteering at the same level of whites, uh, there's something else going on here that they're not, that they're being a little disingenuous about in in the numbers. Yeah, I also wonder if it has something to do with this idea that, like, Asian Americans are perceived as robotic. And, I mean, they mentioned some of this, like, the fact that Asian Americans are seen as less leader-like material. And that's because... Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and, like, oh, volunteering goes against that stereotype and therefore Asians need to do that more. But that really is based off of a misconception. I mean just like a racist conception of what it means to be yeah yeah isn't it and i saw that i was like what the fuck where is this coming from yeah like i I was like okay yeah they're gonna dig into it and the article ended so like what the hell guys (laughs) um but i also think like like this whole like valuing like prestigious universities this is a highly asian phenomenon right i work in i work in tech and um where you like Alma mater doesn't matter for much, really. It doesn't come up in conversation. Um, I don't bring it up. You know, it's uh, like white people don't give a shit, honestly. Uh, I mean, it, it kind of matters if it's, you know, I guess one resume versus another. But in terms of just on the ground valuation, it really doesn't it doesn't play a big part. Yeah, there are also some Asian uh, students, even Asian American ones who ultimately want to go work in Asia and they're, because they don't know like the intricacies of, of like the uh, American education system and everything, so I think they're the name like, especially the top names, like everybody knows the top schools, they're, like very good schools in the middle they might not know as much of, so I think there's a small but significant part uh, one of the reasons why Asian students might care so much is if they want to go back to Asia that really matters. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't matter. Um, I've had experiences where, you know, um, like I needed to, I needed to rely on, you know, my credentials to be seen as, uh, to be seen, for my opinions to be seen as valid. 
right? So there, that's what it comes, you know, we talked about this earlier, that where you where you went to school kind of is a brand, right? And you're kind of relying on this brand being well known and valued enough in broader society, that you kind of uh, get benefit of the doubt. So it's definitely played a part in my career. But this, uh, so it's hard to say, like, is the rat race to the Ivies good or bad? Like, the answer is, it's like everything else it's complicated um like would i have would i be able to be where i am or have as have the opportunities that i have if i hadn't come from mit i don't know i it's hard to say the answer to that but okay here's the ultimate that's like all of us can only go to one school in our lifetime right but you if you have kids how hard would you want them to go to the level of schools you went to i'm not sending my kids to mit <laughs> Uh, what about you, Oriana? Oh my gosh, I haven't thought that <laughs> far yet. I'm. I mean, times are different, but I mean, I, I just from my knowing the school, knowing how intense it was, I'm sure things have changed. I hope things have changed. That immense pressure um, to succeed, to just survive in in a pressure cooker environment. I mean, I hopped from like a really intense high school to a really intense college. So uh, I mean, it's a really hard partying school. I mean it. The suicide rate is sky high there too. Uh, so I, I I don't know. And ultimately, you know, I I have ha- I've taken I remember like taking courses at the local state school. Um, I mean they were using the same textbooks that MIT was using. I mean there's and uh, like course material from really elite universities is available online. So it's it's like the value of the going to these schools does go down to that brand more than possibly more than the substance and that's probably like a taboo thing to say if you come from one of these institutions i think for the humanities that might be that might be different because there's a qualitative uh nature to that exchange of ideas but uh for i mean and that definitely is true uh for engineering and science as well once you get past like the basics and you get to actually like do research and actually start creating on your own, having talented uh, and having a strong network of successful, intelligent, creative people around you to foster that and then drive your work to the next level is super critical. But at least for like like the prereq sort of classes, like there's no reason to go to an MIT to take organic chemistry. Uh, uh, when you said textbooks and uh, humanities, I was just like sarcastically, sarcastically thinking, well, no, you see Harvard's copy of Middlemarch is much superior to Boston College's copy. <laughs> <laughs> Ridiculous. Uh, yeah, so, so there's, I, yeah, I, don't, I, I just don't know. Like part of me thinks that the trend will be, like it's, it's going to go one of two ways, right? With the rise of, uh, you know, online courses and free material available via the internet, the value of that English boarding school model is going to go down. Yeah, that's going to be a huge, huge hit to these elite schools. Because uh-huh. right? that's really the, that's their unique selling point, right? Um, so my feeling is that the way it's going to go is uh, a lot more of that education is going to be decentralized from these big institutions. Um, and the value of the undergraduate degree is probably going to go down. And this is going to go back to... and. Uh, and this is already happening right like before you could just get like before it was you could get a high school degree and if you were talented enough you could work for nasa right a lot of the engineers who put a man on the moon did not go to college oh really i didn't know that 
I'm not the bulk of them did, but wow. uh, I mean, and the ones who went to college, they just have that that uh, bachelor's degree, and they put a man on the on the moon. Now you, I mean, it would be possible to do that now. You'd have to get a PhD. You'd have to do you know like ten years as a postdoc. You know, you're it's basically a you basically get a job like ten years before you graduate. I mean, before you retire. The way it's structured now, it right? could be that our generation saw the, the the heyday of of the undergraduate, like the the old um, undergraduate experience. But like the second way that I see education going is the opposite direction. the The model that it was on like a hundred years ago, where the where uh, only the elites go to these schools, because now price is so prohibitive. Can it be a democratic institution? Is it? Is it valuable enough for like fifty percent of the population to have an undergraduate degree? So that's like the pre Kingman Brewster reforms, like back when universities were pretty much like a finishing school for elite young men. Uh, then there was like this reform and said everybody's entitled to like a college education, and and we're like we may have seen the peak of that in our generation, possibly. I was going to say that with my prospective kids, uh, I mean, I, I say this now, maybe I'll change my mind later, but I, I'm, I'm just going to adopt like a sink or swim model. I'm not going to spend a fortune on tutors. Like, hell no, I'm not spending that money. Um, and if you are self-motivated enough to want to go to these schools, then great. If you're not, then it's, it's like, I don't think they're all that, they're not all that they are set to be. And in fact, maybe harmful. Yeah. My, I think my parents kind of had that approach with me. Um, because they were never like, you have to go to an Ivy League. They were like, if you go to Rutgers, that's perfectly fine. Because undergrad doesn't matter as much as graduate school. Um, and so, I mean, back then they were really thinking, like, get into a good medical school. Um, but where you go for undergrad doesn't matter. Like, so I need to put a disclaimer because I know my mom listens to this. Mom, I understand you did oh, not. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you guys were awesome. You did not pressure me to go to a to go to an elite school. This was entirely entirely me. And now I can. I'm finally old enough to say you were right in a lot of ways. Um, so they didn't put that much pressure on me. But I mean, I grew <laughs> up like Korean in a really Chinese area. Uh, so I kind of felt that little like pressure inside myself to c- try to see if I could win. Uh, it kind of being this outsider in this game. So it was entirely self-motivated. Um, to Kind of a game. And my parents were like, this is stupid. Um, it, for undergrad, just, you know, get in where you, like, where you know you'll be, like, the top of your class. Because grad school is going to be way more important. Um, so, like, save your, like, yeah, like, if you get into, you know, what, like, a UC Berkeley or something, go there. Uh, you got a full ride and then and then try for like graduate school or something I'm like, no, I need to show Daniel Kim. That's not his name. <laughs> uh, who's boss here. Um, so, yeah. So it sounds like all of our parents were relatively hands off and we're kind of talking about a phenomenon we were still just caught up in. Yeah, but that also might have been because we were pretty self-motivated. If we weren't, they might have been much more hands on. Yeah, maybe. I feel like, yeah, I don't know. I wonder... In fact, I wonder now if maybe as time goes by, there's going to be more and more emphasis on graduate school. And so parents will actually encourage their children to go to schools where they know they can succeed. And then there will be kind yeah. of like dominate those small ponds. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that takes a generation of people like us who know that system, who've seen it. Uh, and then 
have a better sense of the culture than you know say our parents like complete outsiders to this to this system um all they know is that the ivy leagues are the best schools, quote unquote best schools and that that's the prerequisite to get to where uh they want their kids to go in their careers and in their lives but i mean so that's kind of that's that's kind of the position we're in where we now have seen what these institutions can offer and what they can't and what they absolutely are horrible at preparing us for and so when it comes to our own kids i think we have a more nuanced picture of what that what opportunities are available for them like i don't think uh like most like first gen immigrants would really be able to like talk through all the nuances of the education system i know like I know my parents were really confused by the idea of the small, like, art school. Like, what do you mean? It's a college for, like, 50 kids to talk, to throw plays? What, what is this? I think uh, ending on that general theme of our parents were right is, is like, a neat little uh, <laughs> ending to this. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to Escape from Plan A. Uh, this was our pod about college admissions. You can read our articles at uh, planamag.com. We also, uh, you can also find us on Twitter. Uh, we'll put our individual handles in the episode description. And uh, Plan A has its own Twitter too. We're also on Facebook. Um, remember to subscribe and rate us, but only if you liked us. Don't give us bad ratings. Uh, we're on iTunes and SoundCloud, and I think that's it. Uh, yeah, so have a great night, everyone. Until next time. And then you too will discover the great and curious truth of the human experience is that selflessness is the best thing you can do for yourself. The sweetest joys of life, then, then, come only with the recognition that you're not special. Because everyone is. Congratulations. Good luck. Make for yourselves, please, for your sake and for ours, extraordinary lives. <laughs>